Welcome to the weekly podcast of Valley Church. I pray that this message will fill you with the hope of the gospel and will help you follow Jesus today. If you would like to check out more resources or donate to this ministry, visit valleychurchwv.com. Now let's tune in to this week's message. Uh, it's good to see everybody today. I hope you have your Bibles because we're jumping over to the book of 1 Corinthians today. Uh, we started this series last Sunday, and uh, we've entitled it Dear Church, as uh, this letter of Scripture is a letter to the church, and um, a letter to a church that's been going through a lot of conflict. And so, kind of like, um, like I showed you a fire blanket last week, if you were there. If you weren't there, you better check the message out from last week. But uh, like a fire blanket, Paul's putting out some fires. And so uh, he's going to really jump into that today. But let's pray. Um, let's uh, let's uh, just pray and ask God to speak to us in his word today. Father, thank you for your word today. God, as we open it, uh, we just recognize that um, we, like the church in Corinth, are, uh, are prone to a lot of the things that they struggled with as well. And so, Lord, um, would you give us humility today? Would you teach us the wisdom of weakness and um, God, that uh, when, we are, when we are weak, you are strong, and that is our reason for boasting. So Lord, um, just uh, use your word today as we open it. God, um, just, uh, just, just uh, come into our lives, Lord, and, and walk with us in this, in this new week, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. All right, well, uh, turn over to 1 Corinthians chapter 1, and um, we're going to start things on verse 10 today. And again, if you missed last week, um, I love it that uh, we have such a good media team that captures things. Um, feel free to subscribe to the podcast or to our YouTube channel or follow us on Facebook. Um, that really just helps us as a church keep connected because I know we can't all be here on every single Sunday, but you never have to miss, miss, uh, miss church. You really don't. So even though we definitely want you here and encourage you to be here every week. Don't lag behind, all right? So um, here we go. Verse 10 is, uh, is where we're starting off. And um, man, uh, this is where things get serious, okay? So let's, uh, let's start at verse 10. He says, I appeal to you, brothers, by the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, that you all agree and that there be no divisions among you, but that you be united in the same mind and the same judgment. And so this is the first word of encouragement, of correction that Paul is giving to this church. And there's going to be a lot more to follow, but here we kind of see the, the main theme of his, his correction, okay? And so, so let's begin with these first few words. He says, I appeal to you, brothers, okay? Paul, he was an apostle of Jesus Christ, but he was not one of the, the 12. Remember, he was, he was a called apostle. That's, that's who he was. And even though he had the right to just come and, and make demands or make commands of the church and just tell them, hey, you have to do this, he didn't go about it that way. He actually appealed to them as a brother, as one of them. He's saying, hey, man, we're, we're brothers and sisters in the Lord. We're part of his family. We're part of the body of Christ. And so as a brother to you, here's some correction. And, and that's, that's the way things should, should be within the church, not, not demanding things of one another, not commanding things of one another, instead inviting one another into obedience to the Lord because of, and, and then you see this next part, because of the name of 
Jesus Christ, by the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. And there you have that phrase again. Remember how we talked about that last week? 17 different times, he says, Lord Jesus Christ. It's not the first, the middle, and the last name of Jesus. No, these are three titles that, that he goes by, and each of them are meaningful. Lord means that he, he is God, okay? He's connected to the Old Testament uh, Hebrew word for his name. Um, the second name is, is uh, Jesus. That's his earthly name. It's connected to the Hebrew name Joshua, which means, means Savior, okay? And then um, third, he's, he's the Christ, which means he's the anointed one. He's the promised one. He's our Messiah. And so because of who he is, he's saying, just follow in obedience after him. I'm not saying, I'm not commanding you. I'm saying, like, look at what God has done for you and follow in obedience to him, okay? But what was the problem he was dealing with? Okay, we see it right away in this verse. The problem at that, at that time was there was growing division happening within the church, tearing apart the unity of the church. A few nights ago, I was uh, over at the roller rink for a, skating, uh, a roller skating party, and um, it's awesome to see all the kids rolling around, and I try to be like a big kid. I'm, I'm usually the tallest one when I'm, when I'm on some roller skates. And uh, unfortunately, I took a tumble the other night, and some of, some of the adults saw it. Thankfully, I didn't break anything, but there was someone else, one of the children, that did break anything. Broke, broke their wrist, actually, by, by wiping right out, Okay. And I had encouraged her and encouraged her, no, just get out on there. And I kind of felt bad after that I was encouraging her just to go out, even though she was uncomfortable on skates. And so I take the blame for that. She is now in a cast, and um, that is very unfortunate. But all that to say, this word that is used here um, for, for unity, that, that you be united, is the same. It's a medical word that it's used for, for the tearing apart or talking about like a broken bone or a, a dislocated joint, okay? And if you've ever endured something like that, some of you guys are breaking tons of bones and dislocated things all the time, okay? Others of us, we haven't. Um, I'm fortunate that I, I think I've only broken my big toe, okay? And that was, that was bad enough. But this is the word that it's used for division and unity. It's medical words and... Um, and, and you know what it's like when you break something, how debilitating and how painful that is. He's communicating that that's what happens in the body of Christ when there is such division in the body. And maybe you've been a part of a church that was like that, where, man, people were just ripping each other apart. And, uh, man, you were like, I, I'm not staying here anymore. It's too painful. And I, I've been a part of that before in my life. And that, that's what the Apostle Paul was dealing with in this church He's saying, stop ripping each other apart. Stop tearing up the body of Christ with all your divisions. Division hurts the body of Christ. That's his main message. And so he, he goes on to say, he says, I want you to then be united in the same mind and of the same judgment. I want to caution us with this, with this, uh, with this invitation being united of the same mind and of the same judgment is not a call for uniformity, okay? It's, it's not a call that we all have to think the same things and believe exactly the same thing, and, and if we disagree, that we need to start a new church, okay? He's saying, amongst your disagreements, 
be united around Jesus Christ. And that's the message that we're going we're gonna to find later on as we go through this, is, is that um, we are going to be, we are going to vary differently in the things that we believe. But man, it's a call to unity amongst our diversity. And that's a good thing in the church. As we keep on going, we, we learn about their division. Keep on, keep on reading to verse 11, though. He says, It has been reported to me by Chloe's people that there is quarreling amongst you, my brothers. And what I mean is that each of you says, I follow Paul, I follow Apollos, I follow Cephas, or I follow Christ. And so there's, there's quarreling that's happening. There's, there's fighting that's going on. There's conflict in the church over leadership. This conflict had led them to divide into different parties, each having their own leader. And you can see some of their leaders. Um, uh, one group would say, well, I follow Paul. After all, he's the one who came here. He's the one who planted the church. I'm going to follow his example. He's the man who, who is the founder and the apostle, and so he, he is, he's, he's the one I'm going to follow, okay? I'm part of the true church. Now, then there's others who would say, well, I, I follow Apollos, and I, I don't know if we really know anything about Apollos, but maybe they would say, well, he's an excellent speaker. He's an excellent leader. His theology is really sound, and so he's here, he's my pastor, and I'm going to follow him, okay? We're part of the true church, and they divided themselves. Then others would say, I follow Cephas. Now, you know who Cephas was, right? He's actually the disciple Peter. That's his, his other name. I follow Cephas. Okay, he, he's one of the original 12. He's, he's the, the first among the disciples. It was the, the disciple who Jesus said, I have given you, Peter, the keys to the kingdom, okay, uh, of heaven. He is our man, okay? So I follow Cephas. I'm part of the true church. That's what they would say. And then others, and we have people in the church all the time like this. They get all holier than thou. Like, I follow Jesus, okay? And that's not a bad thing, okay? But they were saying, like, ah, you all are following men. We're following Jesus. We're the true church. And so you see the division that was being caused over their disagreements about leaders. And if you really think about it, their boasting was not really a boasting deep down at their core and, you know, about the greatness of Paul, the, the greatness of Paulus, or the greatness of Cephas. It was actually a boasting in themselves. They thought they were great because of who they followed. And I'll tell you, when we connect it to ourselves, there's tendencies that we have to do the same thing, okay? The, the problem in the Corinthian church if you boil that down, and we're going to see this theme run through it through the book, is their, their problem was arrogance. They thought that they knew it all. And so it led them, and when we are arrogant ourselves, it, it leads us into thinking that we are superior to others, better to others, that our church is better, or we're better because of the Bible translation we read that we're better because of our theology. We're be better because of the ministries of our church. We're better because of the pastor that we follow or, or the staff that, that are in our church. Or we're better because of the people that we surround ourselves or our network that we're a part of. And um, 
I will be the first to say it's not wrong to make distinctions between churches and pastors. It actually is a very positive thing if you think about it, as long as we're not cutting one another down. Um, different pastors in different churches have different callings, different, um, different, different characters, different challenges that they minister to. And so all these different churches, man, the, the, the gospel is, is, uh, needs to go far and wide. And it's too big for any one church just to carry that, okay? And so we see, we see diversity. I mean, you go walk into a, another church in Payton City this Sunday, and I, I guarantee you, you're going to be blessed because they're reaching a segment of this town that Valley Church doesn't reach. And if you think that on a global scale, that is how the church of God works, okay? Now, What's wrong is, is uh, when we think that we're superior to others. We're superior to them because we do things differently than they do, or we believe things that are different than they do. We don't think of ourselves as superior. And that's what, that's what the Apostle Paul is warning against. Now, Spurgeon, he, he writes this in his commentary, and I want to read it for you because this, this uh, really helped me understand this passage well. And, and he gives some application. He said, I bless God that there are so many denominations. If there were not men who differed a little in their creeds, we would never have as much gospel as we do. God has sent different men to defend different kinds of truth. But Christ defended and he preached all. Christ's testimony was perfect. And so again, this is just a call for us, I, I think, to humility uh, when it comes to our relationship with one another, uh, when we find that there's disagreements amongst ourselves. It's a call to, like, first have a conversation with them to try and understand, okay, how did you come to that? How do, how do you understand it that way? Um, also, a call to just a humility when it comes to thinking about other churches and other, other denominations um, that, that both claim the name of Jesus Christ. Um, uh, it, it's also, I think, a call to not make much of ourselves, not make uh, much of pastors or leaders, um, but uh, really to, to just follow after Jesus, put ourselves under Him um, in, in a very simple way, uh, to steer away from trying to platform and entertain and uh, consume in the church. I think it's a call to all of that, okay? So, Paul goes on, and then he gives a convicting question. And this is the convicting question he gives, verse 13. He asks this, Is Christ divided? Was Paul crucified for you? Or were you baptized in the name of Paul? Now, Paul, when you put it that way, it really shows how foolish our divisions are. Because it was only Jesus who has done this for us. We look to Him. Our boast should be in Him. Okay, and he's making that clear. And then he goes on. He says, I thank God, verse 14, that I baptize none of you except Crispus and Gaius, so that no one may say that you were baptized into my name. I did baptize also the household of Stephanus. And beyond that, I don't know whether I baptized anyone else. For... Christ did not send me to baptize, but to preach the gospel. For Paul, preaching the gospel was more important 
than baptizing people. Now, you may have thought, did I hear you right, Paul? And yes, you did hear Paul right. He said it. Preaching the gospel is more important than baptizing. God did not send me to baptize, but to preach the gospel. Now, apparently, some of the Corinthians, they thought it was such a big deal, a big deal, when a certain, probably a religious leader, or Paul himself, baptized them, okay? And they thought that they were better, or maybe they were more spiritual or something, when they were baptized under the leadership of a certain Christian leader. And Paul is pushing back on this. Now, Paul's not opposed to baptism at all, and we, we see that. I mean, he obviously baptized people. He's not trying to undervalue it. He's not trying to neglect it. But what he's saying is, is man, the person that is baptizing you does not impact the validity of your baptism. It doesn't make your baptism better or worse. After all, what's the Great Commission? Jesus said, go into all the nations, baptizing them in the name of Jonathan, in the name of Cliff, in the name of Precious. No, okay. In the name of the Father, in the name of the Son, in the name of the Holy Spirit. And that, that's, that's the name. We're to baptize people in the name of our Lord and Savior, okay? Baptize people. So, so he's, he's pushing back against that. That was a wrong idea, a way that they were dividing. They were thinking some people were better than others because of who they got baptized with. But then the other thing that I think comes out of this passage, and, and I might step on some toes, but the Bible is doing this, and you need to hear this clearly, is that uh, he's, he's teaching that baptism is not essential to salvation, Baptism is not essential to salvation. Now, it, this brings up a theological issue that um, there's actually a lot of uh, different ideas, especially in this valley, with some other denominations. And we love those other denominations, but we do think differently on this. Some denominations um, here teach uh, a theology called baptismal regeneration. And this is, this is the idea that... Um, uh, baptismal regeneration is the belief that baptism is necessary for salvation. More precisely, that you are not fully saved unless you have been baptized by immersion, unless you have been water baptized. That regeneration has not come unless that has happened, okay? A lot of you probably grew up with that, okay? And this, this I'm just trying to teach you from Scripture the way that we're seeing it, the way that we're understanding it, okay? They, I'm sure you could go to them and they could explain the reason for their belief, and, and that's, that's all right. I'd invite you into that conversation, okay? Um, but this is, this is what we see in Scripture, okay? Paul said, Christ did not send me to baptize. Now, if baptismal regeneration were true, there is no way that Paul would ever thank God that he baptized so few people. And that he, as he, that, that he was sent as an, as an evangelist could say that um, Christ did not send me to baptize. Because if you believe that baptism was necessary for salvation, man, he'd be baptizing every single convert that he had. He remembers his converts. And he, you see, he's having a hard time remembering who he baptized. Okay, and that, that's interesting. Because Paul, for Paul, it was not essential to salvation. Okay, so what does this mean for us? This is important. Um, it's why at Valley Church, 
uh, we value baptism, and we joyfully uh, do baptisms here. I mean, we, we love it. We rejoice in people being baptized, and we encourage you to be baptized. If you have not been baptized, baptism is, is, uh, is obedience to what Jesus said. You should be baptized if you have followed Jesus, and we invite you to that. But we do not believe that it is essential to salvation. It's also why, um, kind of in the example of Paul, as Paul didn't baptize everybody, why the pastor doesn't baptize everybody either. Um, You'll notice that when we have baptisms, oftentimes we allow the person that has been influential in discipling that, that individual to be there to, not to baptize them in their name, but to be there as a witness and as a support to that person in their faith that uh, they passed on to them, okay? It's just a way that we, we encourage them. Nobody's getting baptized in anybody's name here except the name of Jesus Christ, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, okay? And so, not that we're perfect, we're all learning, but I'm just saying this, this looks like the clear teaching of Scripture right here, and so, so my encouragement is that, that we just listen to this example that Paul is giving. It's a plea for unity, and um, let's, let's unify around, around um, the teaching of Scripture in that way. Second, um, he encourages them, he pleads with them to uh, just unite around, second, the power of the cross. The power of the cross. If you're taking notes, those are your two words. And they come from verse 17 through 25. And we see this section where he just, he just preaches Jesus, he preaches the cross. And uh, he says this, Christ did not send me to baptize, but to preach the gospel, and he goes on, and not with words of eloquent wisdom, lest the cross of Christ be emptied of his power. Now, you need to understand, in Corinth, some of the things that they valued at that time were philosophy, education, uh, oratory skills, public speaking, okay? And people would, would come from far and wide to hear the latest and greatest ideas. Um, basically, they, they like to have TED Talks all the time in their, in their gathering spaces. And um, naturally, when people heard the gospel and heard these new ideas, they heard about Jesus, they expected them to be conveyed like a TED Talk. Uh, like very eloquent, very well done, you know, and, and all this eloquent wisdom coming, coming from them on par with the wisdom of their day. But Paul, again, he's pushing back against, against this, literally saying, if I'm so obsessed with my eloquence, making a connection, my own wisdom, my presentation, being relevant, being entertaining in, in, in the way that I speak, I'm going to naturally avoid the message of the gospel, which is the cross of Jesus Christ. Now, if you think about it, these words are sobering for us today because don't we tend to set up our churches kind of like a TED Talk? We naturally do. Let's just be honest about it. And don't a lot of churches, and, and we've, we've done this some too, naturally want to gravitate toward, oh, we want to be relevant. We want to connect with social issues going on. We want to talk about them. We want to address them. You know, we, we want to, um, you know, uh, talk about um, issues with emotions and, you know, just politics and other things and, and like, and get away, we get away from Scripture and sprinkle in things sprinkle in the Word of God when we want to, 
and not use it when we don't want to. And Paul's warning against that. And let, let's take that as a warning for us that let's, let's devote ourselves to the Scripture, to the Word of God. Um, let's adjust our expectations when we come to church that we're not just going to hear some dynamic speaker, but we're going to hear, hear the Bible, okay? And so I hope when you come to, to Valley Church, that's your expectation, that you're not coming based on who's speaking because you like their speaking better, but you come because we're going to open the Word of God. That should be your expectation, okay? Now, I, I love it when someone connects well, and we, we'll try to, because it just helps get the message across. But man, he's saying, that's not the main point. The main point is the Word of God. It's, it's the message of Christ crucified. And, um, and, and he says, that just doesn't connect with some people. Verse 18, he goes on. Let's listen to it. Um, he says, for the word of, uh, word of the cross is folly to those who are perishing. But to us who are being saved, it is the power of God. Look at that phrase, the word of the cross first. It sounds kind of um, like a noble religious phrase. Um, and that's because we have sanitized that. We wear crosses around our necks. We, you know, plaster crosses on our walls. We outline crosses with lights. That's what we do, okay? But in that first century, the cross was seen as a symbol of cruel, humiliating, torturous death. People, when they heard the, the phrase, the word of the cross, um, I'm sure they kind of turn their noses up or kind of turn their head cockeyed like, hmm, word of the cross? Like, what kind of morbid, cruel religion are these people following? The word of the cross, okay? The idea that being saved through the work of a crucified man is foolish. That's what, that's what a lot of people thought. What kind of God endures that. That looks like weakness. But that was Paul's point. How the perishing see the cross is completely different than how the saved see the cross. Those being saved see the cross as wisdom in its weakness. So to us, being saved is the power of God. The fact that God loved his creation so much, he sent his only son to this earth, to become human, to, to endure everything as we do, yet was without sin. And then he bore the wrath of God upon himself, taking our sin, our shame upon that cross and being crucified and dying, being buried, being laid in the grave for three days, but it didn't stop there, rising again, rising again on that third day. That's the power of God. But to some people, man, they think about the message of the cross and they just think about a, a God who failed, a God who, who was crucified by men, who was rejected. And they think, that, that's just foolishness. Who, who follows that kind of God? But the reason we do is because our God is alive. He's defeated the grave. He's defeated death. He's defeated sin on the cross. And the cross is the symbol of our, the salvation that has come to us, that he saved us through the cross. He goes on, and then it, it quotes the prophet Isaiah in Isaiah, he says uh, in verse 19, For it is written, I will destroy the wisdom 
of the wise. And the discernment of the discerning I will thwart. That's a quotation if you want to write it down from Isaiah chapter 29, verse 14. And Paul is just showing, man, in spiritual matters, God opposes the wisdom of man. He'll do things that just don't make sense to us. He'll destroy the wisdom of the wise. He does not bow down to it. Now, there's a, a tendency, I think, that we have to think that the smartest and most educated people in the world will know God the best. But if you look at most of them, even though a lot of them have devoted themselves deeply to studying our world, studying psychology, studying science, so many of them have let their own knowledge and their own so-called wisdom lead them away from a knowledge of God. And um, this is an interesting story I came across this week about Albert Einstein. Einstein, you know, we think of him as the model of wisdom, and he actually, uh, he did believe in, in God. But uh, the story goes like this. One day, students in one of Al- Albert Einstein's classes were saying that they had decided that there was no God. So they're claiming to be atheists. And Einstein asked them, he asked, uh, how much of all the world's uh, knowledge, the knowledge of the world, do you have amongst yourselves? And so the group of students, they, they put their heads together and they, they discussed it and they, they came up with a number and they said, we believe that we as a class possess about 5% of the world's knowledge. And Einstein thought that was a little bit generous, uh, but he didn't push back and, and he said, is it possible that God exists in the 95% that you do not know? See, um, that's our God. We think we're so wise. We think we're so strong. You know, we think that we know it all, but yet this is a call to humility. It's a call for us to come under the wisdom of God and say, God, um, I don't understand this. But man, in what you showed as weakness, God, I believe that there is power. And so I place myself under the work of Jesus. Verse 20 goes on, and it asks the question, where's the one who's wise? Where's the one who's wise? Where's the scribe? Where's the debater of the age? Has not God made foolish the wisdom of the world? For since the wisdom of God, the world did not know God through wisdom. It pleased God through the folly of what we preach, to save those who believe. Again, he's just teaching God's ways are not our ways. What looks like foolishness to to us is not foolishness to God. Isaiah 55 verses 8 and 9, God says, For my thoughts are not your thoughts, neither are your ways your ways my ways, says the Lord. For as the heavens are higher than the earth, so are my ways higher than your ways and my thoughts than your thoughts. Verse 22, as you go, go to the text again, Paul goes on, he said, Jews, they demand signs, and the Greeks seek wisdom, but we preach Christ crucified. A stumbling block to the Jews and folly to the Gentiles, but to those who are called, both Jews and Greeks, Christ, the power of God, and the wisdom of God. See, two groups he identifies. He says, you Jews, you you demand signs. 
Now, when you think of Jesus, they regarded Jesus, the Christ, as a crucified stumbling block. You know, Christ crucified was a stumbling block to them. Because when they, they thought of, of Jesus being crucified, the one who was supposedly their Messiah, him being rejected and crucified was an offense. It was, it was a scandal. He, he was a failed Messiah. And so therefore, they didn't believe that he was the true Messiah. They, they still believe that there is someone to come. Jesus lost. He's not our guy. The Greeks themselves, though, they, they had a different way of looking at things. They sought after wisdom. And so because they valued the pursuit of wisdom, academic achievement, philosophical advances, Jesus was a hard sell for them because Christ crucified was foolishness. Gods don't bleed. Gods don't die. Okay? Gods are not vulnerable. They don't get crucified. Who follows a defeated king? They forget the end of the story. That's what I'd say. But you know, God did not respond to their conventional wisdom. He kept his gospel. And uh, verse 25, Paul goes on to say, For the foolishness of God is wiser than men, and the weakness of God is stronger than men. And that's why he says, that's why we preach Christ crucified. Now, there was a church who once uh, inscribed words on an archway leading to, um, leading to a church courtyard. And they inscribed those words, we preach Christ crucified on this archway, okay? And at the time, they were a very strong church. They were teaching the Word of God. They were preaching Christ crucified, and they were convicted about that. But over time, two things happened. The church lost its passion for Jesus and the gospel. And also, ivy began to grow over on that archway. And the growth of that ivy started to cover the message that they had declared many years before, showing the spiritual decline. Originally it said, we preach Christ crucified, but that our ivy had grown over crucified. The words crucified, Christ crucified. And so, so all, that, all that that archway said at that time was, we preach Christ. And their messages tended to, to say things like, um, you know, Jesus was a great man. He's a great moral example. And that's the kind of messages that they, they would preach instead of Christ crucified. Well, as the ivy kept on growing over this archway, it covered over the, um, the name of Christ. And so all that it said now was, we preach and so what they would do is they would, they would preach religious platitudes. They would preach on social issues. They would preach on politics and, and things going on currently in their day to try and connect with their audience. But finally, as that ivy kept on growing across, all that their statement read was, we. And uh, the church became nothing more than just a social club gathered around some good, good morals. And... Um, Nothing about God. Now, I believe that that's a warning for us. Again, that just as Paul was preaching to the Corinthians, man, don't go get so obsessed with your, you know, the, the, trying to connect with the issues of the day. And, you know, the issue of the day is, man, we're, we're all destined to die. And Christ has overcome the grave. He died on your behalf. 
we preach Christ crucified. It doesn't end there. It's just the beginning of the story because three days later, Christ rose again from the dead, okay? That's why we preach it. But man, um, when, you're, when you're tempted to be disunif- you know, disunified, when you're tempted to preach another message, just remember that that's, that's the message that we preach. Verse 26 goes on, and, and this brings the last point. So there's a plea for unity. It talks about the power of the cross. Third, here's what he does. He petitions the church to humility. Petitions the church for humility. Verse 26 reads like this, and we'll we'll end the chapter with this. He says, For consider your calling, brothers. Not many of you were wise according to the worldly standards. Not many of you were powerful. Not many were of noble birth. But God chose what is foolish in the world to shame the wise. God chose what is weak in the world to shame the strong. God chose what is low and despised in the world, even the things that are not, to bring to nothing the things that are, so that no human being might boast in the presence of God. Now again, Paul is calling them in their arrogance to humility, okay? And the first thing he points out is, man, if you need some humility, just look at yourself. Look at yourself. Who are you when God called you? Not many of you were wise according to the worldly standards. Not many of you were powerful. Not many of you were from rich families, okay? Why would God call you unless he really loves you, unless he really cares about you. Keep in mind, too, at, at that time, the church was made up of mostly people of really low standing in society, slaves, people that didn't make a lot of money, blue-collar workers, okay? And, uh, man, this, this, is, this is the way that Jesus, he also came into the world. Remember, he was born in a barn? He was, around animals. That's no place for a king, but yet that's how he came. And who did he call to himself? First, the shepherds, right? The shepherds came. These were the outcasts of society. And then think about his disciples, fishermen, tax collectors, people that that the world didn't like too much. And he continues to do that today. And so think think about your calling if you think, think about who you are, isn't it humbling that God would call you to himself? That when you think about all your sin or your shame, that he would love you so much. That he calls you, he wants to call you as his child. Come to him, okay? Verse 30, and we'll end with this one. And because of him, you are in Christ Jesus, who became to us the wisdom from God, righteousness and sanctification and redemption. Christ is these three three things to us. Jesus is this to us in our weakness, these three things. First of all, he is righteousness. Righteousness meaning that we are declared not guilty, not because of something that we did, but because of what Jesus did on the cross. By his righteous deeds, we are not only not only is our sin and shame removed and we're declared not guilty, but we're also given a positive righteousness because of Christ, okay? Righteousness. Second, sanctification speaks of our behavior, 
how believers are separated from, from our world to our God, that, that we don't grow in sanctification by, by focusing on ourselves. We grow in our sanctification by focusing on what Jesus has done for us. He's the one who lived a perfect life. He's the one who perfectly pleased God. And so we live in response to that sanctification, okay? Third, he is our redemption. And that's a, that's a word that was taken from slavery. When a slave was bought back out of it, when their debts were paid off, that is what, what, what redemption means, is that someone purchased us to permanent freedom. It's a beautiful thing. We don't find freedom by focusing on ourselves. We focus on our freedom because Jesus purchased it at the cross. The wages of sin, what we owe, the debt that we owe to God is death. But Jesus Christ, he paid that. The free gift of God, Scripture says, is eternal life through Jesus Christ, our Lord. And so, as verse 31 closes, if you have anything to boast about, boast about Jesus, okay? So, so that, as it is written, he says, let the one who boasts, boast in the Lord. God did it all this way so that he would get the glory. How does God get the glory? The evidence of God's glory is his choice of the unworthy. That's how God gets glory. And so if you're going to boast this week, if you're tempted to be prideful, if you're tempted to be arrogant about something, man, just bring yourself down and just remember your only reason for boasting is Christ. Let's boast in the Lord. As we close, I want, um, I want to share with you a song. I'm not going to sing it. I'm going to read it for you because the worship team is going to lead us out in, in, a, in, a, in a good song as we close. But it's a song that I, I grew up singing. I, I don't know exactly when it was written, but it was written by um, a man named Brian Luttrell, and it's a song, In Christ Alone. And uh, I want to read for you the lyrics. I want you to just take them in. If you want to close your eyes, just, just receive them for yourself. Make them your prayer as we close our service. Um, but it's, it's one that just talks about just, just the work of Christ on your behalf. And he, he says this, In Christ alone will I glory, though I could pride myself in battles won. For I've been blessed beyond measure. And by his strength alone, I overcome. Oh, I could stop and count successes like diamonds in the sand in my hands, but these trophies could not equal to the grace in which I stand. In Christ alone, I place my trust. I find my glory in the power of the cross. In every victory, let it be said of me my source of strength, my source of hope is Christ alone. In Christ alone will I glory, for only by his grace I am redeemed, and only his tender mercy could reach beyond my weakness to my need. And now I seek no greater honor than just to know him more and to count my gains as losses to the glory of the Lord. In Christ alone I place my trust. I find my glory in the power of the cross. In every victory, let it be said of me, my source of strength, my source of hope is Christ alone.
Pray with me. Father, thank you for your words that just, just overwhelm us today. God, it is so easy to forget the power of the cross. It's easy to get so wrapped up in, in maybe how well we're doing spiritually or, or maybe, maybe we just feel so much guilt and so much shame. God, whatever, whatever it is, if we're on either side, God, help us just to, to bow down at your feet and just embrace the wisdom of weakness. God, that in the weakness that you showed, God, Lord, you are strong, defeating our sin, defeating our shame, defeating death and the grave. And so, Lord, I realize that there's people here from all different kinds of backgrounds, people that have been raised in church, following Jesus for a long time, people that uh, maybe are still on the fence kind of question, I, I don't know about this whole thing. God, whatever it is, God, may, um, may we come to you and receive your invitation. Come to me. Come follow me. To leave ourselves, leave our own wisdom, and embrace the wisdom of weakness. God, thank you for Jesus, our Savior. Thank you for the cross. And God, we, um, we just pray, God, that we would follow after you this week. God, that we'd be found as your children, as your disciples. God, we love you. We pray this in your name. Amen. Thank you for listening to this week's message from Valley Church. If you were impacted by today's teaching or made a decision to follow Jesus, we would love to hear from you, pray for you, and walk with you. To connect with us, visit valleychurchwv.com. There you will find resources on following Jesus and information about how to partner with us here at Valley Church as we seek, serve, and send disciples of Christ.